Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we've covered several gangster and gangster-related crimes on this podcast by now. Capone, Dillinger, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre... And these stories of the 1930s gangster era in the U.S., for the most part, with maybe the exception of Bonnie and Clyde, tend to be very macho, very guy-centric. The women involved, usually wives, girlfriends, tend to take on secondary roles in the stories. For example, the blonde alibi in the St. Valentine's Day massacre. But there was one different sort of female criminal who came to the forefront during this period and really captured the imaginations of the American public and even of law enforcement officials, and that was Ma Barker. Yeah, you've probably heard her name. Barker was said by some to have been the leader of the Barker Gang, also known as the Barker Carpus Gang, whose members have been called, quote, the unsung villains of Depression-era crime. J. Edgar Hoover, who he always pops up in these gangster episodes, too, he called the Barker Gang the, quote, brainiest and most dangerous gang of the war on crime. So if he has a high opinion of you, then you're probably pretty tough stuff. Well, we'll see about that. But even though the Barkers aren't as famous as Capone's or Dillinger's gangs today, in the 1930s, they caused quite the stir, setting off a crime spree that put them and their mother at the top of Hoover's to-catch list. Hoover himself painted a really intimidating picture of Ma Barker. In 1938, he said of her, quote, the most vicious, dangerous, and resourceful criminal brain this country has produced in many years belonged to a person called Mother Barker. In her 60 years or so, this woman reared a spawn of hell. To her, her sons looked for guidance, for daring, and resourcefulness. They obeyed her implicitly. I really hope there's a book out there that's <laughs> titled something like Barker Boys, Spawn of Hell. Spawn of Hell. <laughs> But other people, other people besides J. Edgar Hoover, paint a very different picture of Ma Barker, one of a doddering old mom who couldn't plan a crime as she even tried. One gangster, for instance, Harvey Bailey, actually said the old woman couldn't plan breakfast. So there you go. Vastly different opinions on this one woman. So how did she get this reputation as a criminal mastermind? And why did she get the reputation? And what was her actual actual involvement in her son's escapades. Was she really planning this or was she just attempting to cook them breakfast and doing so unsuccessfully? We're going to take a look into all of that in this episode. Yeah, but first we're going to take a look at who Ma Barker was before she was a Ma to anyone. She was born Arizona Donnie Clark to Scottish-Irish parents in Ashgrove, Missouri in 1872, and she started calling herself Kate pretty early on. It was the same area of southwest Missouri that the famous outlaws Frank and Jesse James were from, and she's said to have grown up kind of idolizing them, looking on Jesse James as a sort of Robin Hood-like folk hero. She saw James in person once, riding by when she was just a kid, and it made this big impression on her. She actually cried when he was killed in 1882. So she grew up 
really looking up to outlaw life, and she grew up pretty tough herself. Although, according to William B. Breuer's book, J. Edgar Hoover and His G-Men, she was also a devout churchgoer and was known to say, praise the Lord at mealtimes. She also sang in church and played the fiddle. So when she was about 20 years old in 1892, Kate married George Barker, who was a poor farm worker from Missouri and, by all accounts, a very mild-mannered sort of guy. He seemed just fine with the status quo. He felt resigned to the fact that he would be a a poor working man. Um, So Kate kind of ran all over him. And according to Breuer, she basically wore the pants in the relationship. But early on, the couple decided to settle in Aurora, Missouri, and it wasn't too long before they started having kids. They had four boys pretty quickly. Herman was born in 1894. Lloyd was born in 1896. Arthur, or Doc, came along in 1899. And Fred, the youngest, showed up in 1902. And when the two oldest boys were still young, Kate and George moved the family to the mining town of Webb City, Missouri, where George took a job in the mines, and Kate pretty much had her hands full raising the boys, who were a rowdy bunch right from the start. She would haul them into church every Sunday, but it didn't really seem to make an impression on them at all. The Barker boys started dabbling in minor offenses like petty theft and vandalizing property by their early teens. By the time they were in their late teens, pretty much all of them had gotten into trouble with the law in one way or another. But instead of disciplining them and trying to keep them in line, I mean, you might imagine a parent just trying to come in with a firm hand and put a stop to this. And you would think that as a church-going mother, especially, Kate would... Put the fear of God in them. Exactly. (laughs) But she actually defended her boys to the hilt. When they got into trouble, she'd basically bully the authorities or cry and plead with them into letting her sons go. She acted as if her kids were being unfairly picked on by the law, and she was devoted to them, and it was... As if they could do no wrong, in a way, in her eyes. Yeah, but eventually the boys had so much heat on them in the Webb City area, Kate decided that it was time for the whole family to move. Usually this happens if there's like better opportunities for a family, but they needed to get out of town. So they all moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma around 1910. And things didn't exactly calm down for the Barkers once they reached their new town either. In fact, Kate seemed to do everything she could to encourage her boys' lawless habits. So it was It wasn't just she wasn't trying to make them stop, make them improve their behavior. She seemed to be egging them on. They moved into this old, run-down house in Tulsa, and Kate set it up as a kind of safe house, or what was called a kind of a cooling-off service for criminals. So any gangster, anyone who had been, who had had the cops on their trail, who needed a place to hide out, could pay a fee and stay at the Barkers for a while. So this way, the boys and their mom got exposure to real criminal minds who were making real money, the kind of money that far exceeded what they could bring in with the small small-time crime that they were doing in their early years. So just a side note here, the Barker boys didn't really appear to have the stature of intimidating criminals. According to Breuer, they were all about five foot three, five foot four, and they weighed in between 119 and 125 pounds. But what they lacked in their build, they made up for in attitude. They seemed to be ruthless, and they were said to have never hesitated to pull the trigger. 
Eventually, though, I mean, that ruthlessness brewing, the Barker boys started to branch out on their own. So according to Public Enemies, America's Greatest Crime Wave and the Birth of the FBI by Brian Burrow, Herman, who, remember, was the eldest brother, became a stick-up man and started robbing stores around the American West. And Lloyd also eventually became involved in robberies. In their teen years, the two younger boys, Doc and Fred, also got involved in, in some more serious crimes, something called the Central Park Gang, which was basically a group of teenage burglars and car thieves who would hang out in the park during the day, commit crimes at night. And according to Burroughs' book, several Central Park Gang members would uh, do stints in the Barker Carpus Gang later in life. So these were early criminal contacts they were making. Just another little side note here. Later, the FBI also portrayed the Central Park gang as a kind of, quote, school of crime, which had Ma Barker as the teacher. But Burroughs says that there really isn't any evidence to support this idea. It's another good possible book title, though. It is. (laughs) What is clear, though, is that the deeper her sons got into the crime world, the less Kate Barker was able to protect them just by badgering police officers. As a result, she saw some really hard times in the 1920s. For example, in 1921, Lloyd was arrested and sentenced to 25 years in Leavenworth prison for robbing a postal truck. In 1922, Doc was arrested when he shot a night watchman during a robbery in Oklahoma. He got a life sentence in the Oklahoma State Prison. Fred, in the meantime, got 5 to 10 in Kansas State Prison for shooting an officer while he was trying to steal a car. And then the biggest blow happened in 1927. Herman was involved in a series of bank robberies in Oklahoma, Missouri, and Texas. And when the cops finally caught up with him in Kansas that August, there was a big shootout. Herman was killed. And according to the account in Mike Mayo's American Murder, the official story was that Herman had killed an officer and then killed himself to avoid being arrested. But Ma Barker just refused to believe this story. She said that her sons would never commit suicide. Um, sticking up for him right to the end, I guess. According to an article in Outlaws, Mobsters, and Crooks, Hoover later pinpointed Herman's death as a kind of turning point for Kate Barker, saying that it changed her, quote, from an animal mother of the she-wolf type to a veritable beast of prey. So this would have been her motivation, uh, if he's to believe, for becoming the violent, no-holds-barred criminal that the FBI later made her out to be. But the other images and descriptions of Ma Barker portray her in a really different light as someone who liked to do jigsaw puzzles and listen to Amos and Andy and knit and cook biscuits for her son to enjoy when they were home from their jobs. And she certainly didn't look the part of a devious, cold-blooded criminal mastermind. I don't know, you might want to Google some pictures of her or something, but Burroughs' book describes her as a short and plump person with stringy black hair. And the public who read about her and her boys, they seem to really perceive her as a mother who was blinded by love, essentially. People thought her feelings for them just clouded her judgment. Yeah, I mean, people could clearly be persuaded with those kind of feelings. That's how the Bonnie and Clyde myth got so big. But um, much like she did when they were younger, Ma Barker is said to have continued to pester prosecutors and others about releasing her sons while they were locked up, even though they were all doing some pretty serious time at this point. Some sources even suggest that she may have bought her favorite son, Freddie's freedom, in the early 1930s. But regardless of how it exactly happened, whether 
his mom took care of business or not. Fred was released from prison in 1931. And while he'd been on the inside, he'd gotten to, to meet some new contacts and had met another inmate named Alvin Carpus. And Carpus had also been mixed up in crime since his teen years and had gotten his sentence reduced while working in a coal mine while he was incarcerated and mining a certain amount of coal. So he and Fred wound up being released the very same year. So free at last, Fred and Carpus met up at Ma Barker's home in Tulsa. Ma, by this point, had left George Barker. They hadn't really ever meshed. They hadn't gotten along for years, and she left him in about 1926. And she already had a new boyfriend, Arthur Dunlop. So I guess her short plumpness didn't work against her at that time. And Ma took to Carpus, Fred's friend, almost immediately. They became pretty tight, and Carpus was almost like, or he became almost like an adopted son to her. According to Burrow, Fred even said at one point that she preferred Carpus to her own boys. He said, quote, you don't get on her nerves the way I do to Carpus. <laughs> so Carpus and Fred soon started pulling off a series of robberies around Tulsa. Apparently, Fred did not mind that his mother preferred this other guy <laughs> to him. But they didn't. their crimes didn't exactly go undetected. They were arrested and they had to escape. So they grabbed Ma and Alfred and they moved them initially to southern Missouri, where Fred and Carpus soon started robbing banks. And robbing banks was lucrative, but again, it didn't exactly keep them out of the limelight. So it wasn't long before Fred and Carpus started to feel the heat on them in Missouri, too. So they decided to move again. I mean, these Barker boys have been moving around their whole life. They moved at the end of 1931, the beginning of 1932, this time to St. Paul, Minnesota, which was known at the time as kind of a refuge for criminals. The police force there was corrupt, so criminals who lived there could work within an established system. As long as you so as long as you followed the rules, you could get away with crime. And Burroughs said it was the, quote, crime capital of the Midwest at the time. So you got there, you'd check in with a guy named Harry Sawyer, who owned a club called the Green Lantern, which was sort of the headquarters of criminal activity in St. Paul. And then Sawyer would organize all the criminal activities in the area. And, of course, Fred and Carpus went to visit him early on, and he introduced them to other criminals, set them up with um, a potential gang members. Exactly, and jobs. With St. Paul as their home base, Fred and Carpus pulled off several bank robberies, and they made off with quite a bit of cash, enough for Fred to bribe his brother Doc's way out of prison so that Doc could join the gang. There were other gang members, of course, but it was a bit of a rotating cast, and you know, throughout this time included people like Francis Keating, Frank Nash, and Harvey Bailey, who we mentioned in the intro to this episode. So during this crime spree of theirs, Ma's boyfriend, Dunlop, turned up dead on the shores of a lake outside of town. What happened here is that Fred and Carpus had suspected him of leaking tales of their various escapades to their St. Paul landlady's son, who used to drink with Dunlop on occasion and ended up calling local detectives on them. They got away, but Dunlop wasn't so lucky. Fred and Carpus either had him killed by an accomplice or killed him themselves. And don't you have to wonder a little bit about what Ma Barker thought of this? <laughs> you know, she stuck with him, so I have to think that maybe she wasn't as uh, into old Alfred Dunlop, Dunlop. after all. <laughs> she seemed. Um, so after this murder, after these robberies, 
they relocated to Kansas City and continued robbing banks. But eventually, they had enough close scrapes with the cops and with bullets, of course, that they decided kidnapping might be a safer line of work to get into than bank robbery. So they pulled off two fairly high-profile kidnappings. The first was in 1933. They kidnapped William Ham, who was the chairman of Minneapolis's largest brewery. They ended up getting $100,000 in ransom for his kidnapping. And then six months later, in early 1934, they kidnapped the Minneapolis banker Edward G. Bremer, and they got twice the amount they had gotten for him, $200,000. And they weren't suspected of these crimes at first, so best of all for them, since they're always used to the cops following them around, they weren't suspects. But one of their accomplices on both of the kidnappings, a Chicago gangster named George Ziegler, who had worked in the past for Al Capone, ended up ended up talking. He told some of his friends about what they'd done, and uh, they decided he was a threat, and Fred and Carpus had Ziegler murdered. The FBI searched Ziegler's body afterwards, though, and they apparently found some leads, which meant bad news for the Barker Carpus gang. After the Bremer kidnapping, Carpus and the Barkers had split up, and they had actually left St. Paul. According to an article by Jane Galvin in American History, Carpus hid out with his pregnant girlfriend in northern Florida and in Cuba, kind of moving around a little bit. But Fred and Ma Barker stayed in central Florida. So even though, as Sarah mentioned, they hadn't initially been accused of the kidnappings, the Barkers and Carpus were well-known enough. They had just gotten into so many run-ins with the law, had gotten into so many shootouts, that laying low for them was really very necessary. Hoover had coined the label, quote, public enemy number one, which you, we've mentioned on this podcast <laughs> before a couple of times. He coined that term in 1933, and Carpus was one of them. He was the one of the first four gangsters to earn that moniker, along with Dillinger and Babyface Nelson. So they were really keeping a close eye on him and taking him very seriously. So things started to break down in January of 1935, when the authorities caught up with Doc Barker. He was actually captured by the famous G-man Melvin Purvis, who we also mentioned previously in a different episode. Doc had a map of Florida in his apartment with Ocala circled, so the FBI figured that's where Ma and Fred were. So with that very obvious clue, by January 19th, agents had the house surrounded and demanded the surrender of, of Ma and her son. And then machine gun fire started to come from the house. So the FBI, of course, answered with more machine gun fire, plus tear gas, plus rifle fire. And according to Mayo's account, the fight lasted anywhere between 45 minutes and four hours, depending on what source you're looking at. But when it was finally over, Fred and Ma were both dead, and according to the FBI's report at the time, Ma was even still clutching her Tommy gun when they were found inside the house. Doc ended up being sentenced to life in Alcatraz, and he died trying to escape from there four years later. The FBI, actually led by Hoover himself, finally caught up with Carpus in New Orleans in May of 1936. They caught Carpus off guard, but the FBI was kind of caught off guard in this situation as well. They weren't quite finished setting up to catch Carpus before he came out. So when he showed up, they had to use an agent's necktie to handcuff him because <laughs> they couldn't find any handcuffs like right off the bat. But he surrendered peacefully and actually was the first public enemy number one to be taken alive. He was also sentenced to life in Alcatraz. And when Alcatraz closed in the 1960s, he got transferred to Tacoma, Washington. He ended up dying in 1979 from an overdose of sleeping pills. 
All right, so we've covered the fates of the gang members, but where did Ma Barker get this reputation as the mastermind of her son's crimes? Because if you noticed in this entire discussion so far, we never really mentioned her participating in any of the crimes, planning them out. She merely seemed to encourage her sons in in the criminal direction and certainly reaped the benefits from what they stole and advocated for them when they were in trouble, but didn't seem to actually be out there with the Tommy gun herself. She was known to do a few sort of small errand type things for the gang, like for instance, when Ziegler was killed, she visited his widow to get her to turn over Ziegler's share of the money from the kidnapping escapades. But there's no evidence she actually participated in the Barker gang's crimes. So many people think that the FBI, Hoover in particular, perpetuated this myth of Ma Barker as the leader of the gang, that diabolical and violent criminal that we described in the intro to the podcast. And he did this simply to justify the fact that they had killed a 63 or so year old lady. In his book, in fact, Burrow refers to her as, quote, an FBI-sponsored myth. Regardless, today, even the FBI seems to believe that this image of Ma Barker is a myth. So it's a lot more likely that Fred and Carpus were the real leaders of the gang. And then many people even think Carpus was really the brains behind the operation. Well, we know it wasn't Doc. No, it was not Doc with his Captain Obvious map. But um, because of that Carpus connection and because some people think he was the brains behind it, that's why it's often referred to as the Barker Carpus gang instead of just something like the Barker boys or the Barker gang. Mayo even calls Carpus, quote, an experienced and imaginative criminal. And he was intimidating, too. We talked about how the Barker boys were mean, but they didn't necessarily seem intimidating in a physical way. Carpus's nickname was Old Creepy <laughs> because he had had a very frosty personality. He had a cold, scary expression. Um, the kind of guy you'd want to stay away from. Beady little eyes. Even though Ma, Ma Barker seemed to really She to him. Yeah, loved him, which I guess <laughs> says creepy. something about her. But yeah, I mean, if you read about uh, about Carpus, you'll often just see him referred to by authors as Creepy Carpus, which is kind of a funny <laughs> name. But in his memoirs, which were published in 1971, Carpus himself wrote, quote, the most ridiculous story in the annals of crime is that Ma Barker was the mastermind behind the Carpus Barker gang. The legend only grew up after her death to justify why she was slaughtered by the FBI. She wasn't a leader of criminals or even a criminal herself. There is not one police photograph of her or set of fingerprints taken while she was alive. She knew we were criminals, but her participation in our careers was limited to one function. When we traveled together... We moved on as a mother and her sons. What could look more innocent? And then he goes on to say, It's no insult to Ma's memory that she just didn't have the brains or know-how to direct us on a robbery. It wouldn't have occurred to her to get involved in our business, and we always made a point of only discussing our scores when Ma wasn't around. We'd leave her at home when we were arranging a job, or we'd send her to a movie. Ma saw lots of movies. (laughs) It's pretty great. I like... I like this image of Ma going off to movies, coming home, working on a puzzle for a little Knitting bit. Knitting a little bit. And then going in and knocking on the widow's door and saying, you better pay up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you have to wonder, I mean, what the exact truth was in any of these stories. It kind of reminds me of the Bell Star episode, too, about how the stories that were told about her after her death were so vastly different from who people say she really was. Well, and again, even back to Bonnie and Clyde, how much did Bonnie really do? So true. 
So in these cases, you have to wonder, is it kind of a combination of the two? Do they meet sort of in the middle or is it really one or the other characterization? So I don't know if uh, any of the listeners out there have any opinions on it that they want to share. I'd be very interested in hearing them. Me too. Yeah, we're at History Podcast at Discovery.com. And you guys love the gangster topic. So I'm sure you're going to have some opinions on Ma Barker and her boys. And maybe some suggestions for future podcasts. I mean, now we've covered three of those four original Public Enemy number ones. So we maybe just it's have, time for Hoover. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. Or maybe it's time for the fourth Pretty Boy Floyd. Oh, yeah. So we could fit him in at some point, too. But we actually have another little announcement of sorts to make on this podcast. It wasn't by accident that we picked a topic about a mother, because... I am actually expecting, so I'm going to be going on maternity leave soon, and we wanted to use this, I guess, as kind of a topic, which now in retrospect is kind of a strange choice uh, to introduce that idea. Someday you can tell your child that this is how you introduced him or her to the world. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'll wait to see how he or she turns out to, to mention that. So, yeah, we're obviously super excited about Davlina having a baby, and Big congrats to you and your husband. Thanks. Um, but yeah, we're also working on on covering episodes during her maternity leave and keeping you guys in stock with new podcasts, too. Yeah, we're going to do kind of a mix of things, which I think will be kind of fun. It's obviously going to be new episodes. We've been kind of working double time. We're trying to to record we new episodes. We have been working like crazy. <laughs> yes, researching like mad. And we are also going to be kind of recapping some older episodes, doing a few reruns that have a twist on them, I yeah, should say. Some of the older episodes that have um, new information has come out, you know, things that you guys email us about and tell us and we think, oh, that would be nice to update. Now we're finally doing some of those. And then we'll also have some best of classics and those will all be handpicked, though. So it'll be our favorite our favorite old episodes for you guys to listen to again. So hopefully you'll stay entertained over the summer. Yeah. And then we'll be back. The same as we've always been. Yeah, with some new ideas. With some new ideas, new perspective, and a history baby. A new baby for Dublina. I think probably one of my favorite things about this baby is when you told me that it could hear. So it's been listening to the (laughs) podcast. Yeah, it should know something about history, and I think it'll know your voice, Sarah. I'm I'm interested to see what it's like when the baby meets you. Cutest thing ever. I'm really hoping it will. It will recognize my voice from hearing me from these unnaturally long stretches of time when we're recording. But um, I can't wait, and I'm super happy for you guys and excited. Thank you. We are, too. So back to the podcast, though. If you guys have any ideas you want to share with us, um, any concerns about the upcoming maternity leave, I hope not. Like Sarah said, I hope we'll keep you entertained. Feel free to write us. We're at History Podcast at Discovery.com. We're also on Facebook, and we're on Twitter at Missed in History. And we do have some fun image galleries, I believe, of public enemies. You can search for that on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.